Hello and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brian Kroger, founder and CEO of Rise8, a digital consulting company. Prior to Rise8, Brian was co-founder and CEO of the United States Air Force Kessel Run. At Kessel Run, Brian led operations for an enterprise-scale software lab that put the Department of Defense on the map in the DevOps community, launching a cloud platform and 22 customer-facing products. I want to learn more, and earlier this year, Gene Kim invited me to join Brian on a tour of Kessel Run. What I learned about the leadership and results that he and his colleagues delivered impressed me tremendously. There are countless lessons in Brian's journey that apply to both federal and commercial transformation initiatives, so I'm thrilled to have Brian sharing his story and his learnings with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Project to Product podcast. I've got a fascinating guest with us here today. I've got Brian Kroger, who is a co-founder of the Kessel Run program at the United States Air Force and CEO of Rise8. And I had this just incredible experience back in February. Gene Kim and I were invited by Brian and by Adam Furtado to visit Kessel Run. When we got there, I saw something that was completely different than what I was expecting. I was expecting to see sort of a, an old, stodgy military institution. Instead, I saw something that rivaled the most vibrant software startup or tech company. I walked in on sort of a daily scrum meeting where everyone was speaking, presenting, sharing ideas, and there was actually a couple hundred people participating. We then went and got this incredible demo on a very impressively large, and I mean, I'm still impressed by large screens, especially large, very large touch screens, on a very large screen of this project that's, I think, one of the marquee outcomes of Kessel Run, or at least one of the first outcomes of Kessel Run, the Jigsaw Project. So, Brian, I'll be asking you about that. But the bottom line is that I saw this kind of exemplary product innovation happening in a place I just did not expect it. And the right kind of mentality and thinking that I think is very transformative in terms of how both the military and I think federal uh, should evolve as a whole in terms of supporting software innovation and, and citizen services. So Brian, welcome. And if you could just tell us a bit about how you helped create Kessel Run, how this thing got started and how you really started you know, creating this kernel of transformation within the US Air Force. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, again, Brian Kroger, I was in the Air Force for about 10 years. And for the first seven years, I was actually an Air Force targeteer, an intelligence officer. Most of my assignments revolved around targeting. And for those seven years, I used really, really terrible software. We have some of the most advanced, capable systems on the planet. But then I was back in the operations center, processing a lot of that data and information and making decisions using Microsoft Excel, Microsoft PowerPoint, SharePoint, and those types of tools, You know, running imagery through Google Earth. So it was the best thing that we had available to us. And so... It was a really frustrating experience. And there were, there were a couple of incidents that I can't talk about, but they really uh, were just turning points for me that I decided I got to go try and fix this. And I tried the traditional process. You know, let's talk to the enterprise about the enterprise requirements process. Let's attend systems engineering and architecture review boards. And it just wasn't going anywhere. So I actually gave up my Intel badge and applied to be a procurement officer because in the Air Force uh, and the entire DOD, for that matter, we've outsourced almost all close to 100% of our software development capability. And so the only way to create a software movement was to do it through procurement. So Kessel Run was actually launched from the procurement side of the DOD, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. But 
Yeah, so I showed up uh, at Hanscom Air Force Base where they were building the targeting software I was so frustrated with. And on the first day, I called over to uh, Defense Innovation Unit Experimental and got introduced to a, a man named Colonel Enrique Oti. We were kind of on parallel paths. I was trying to figure out how to take on this large bureaucracy that is the Defense Acquisition and Procurement Organization. Uh, and he was at this you know, innovative experimental unit and able to have a lot more uh, freedom. So we started working together and the rest is kind of history. We, together with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jeremiah Sanders, founded Kessel Run, which was a project to take back that software development capability. So rather than going and buying some software, we decided we were going to procure the capability to develop software in the Air Force again. And that's at the crux, at the core of what Kessel Run is. Yeah, exactly. This is the pattern I've seen both in the public sector and commercially, is that when organizations realize that that software is core, things change, right? And when they realize that other federal organizations in the U.S., but other countries as well, I've noticed some have made the shift. And the shift has often been from 100% outsourced, which naturally creates this waterfall motion, really no product orientation or notion of of flow, because really what you're doing is, is fundamentally, you know, creating a list of requirements on these very long programs or projects, and then dumping them on, on these dev teams, which are somehow separated. And what's, I mean, just fascinating to me that, again, you managed to change the mindset and prove out a completely different model, that you did it from within procurement, which now makes sense to me the way you paint the picture. But, you know, how did you do that? How did you get the people internally? How did you actually manage to make this happen, given you went completely against the grain? of what was very mature, very sophisticated, very long running waterfall process where all, all delivery, all software development is outsourced. So I just don't know how to even start that. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, there's no simple answer for that. But I, I think shorthand, what I would say is it took some really visionary leaders and an incredible group of people that was just willing to do the hard work. There's no shortcuts here. I think, um, you know, I like to say I was inside of procurement. Colonel Odie was in the innovation unit experimental. It took both of those organizations coming together, right? Neither was uh, sufficient. Both were necessary, but neither were sufficient. And then, you know, we worked together to kind of hack the bureaucracy of the Air Force. So on my side, I was going through a lot of the traditional, you know, how, how do you answer to governance, risk, and compliance inside of the enterprise? How do you get through the traditional acquisitions process? If you've ever you know, heard anything about federal contracting, it's a very long, drawn-out process. Often, you know, it will take three years to develop the requirements, three years to get on contract, and then another three years to deliver. The average life cycle for most software systems, regardless of size and dollar amount in the DoD, is uh, eight to 10 years to get to deployed, by which time you know, it's completely out of date and irrelevant. So breaking down those cycles was no small task. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what really struck me, you know, is like, it was, this was the same time I was actually trying to digest our Canada's federal government had this, this huge fiasco with the Phoenix payroll system. So I know how many people had read the book Phoenix Project, but they, they called the payroll system Phoenix, you know, a lot of outsourcing of these kinds of disconnects, and exactly these kinds of failures that you were working against. So, you know, as software delivery and innovation becomes more important to more and more countries, organizations, uh, federal agencies, and so on, what is so key to me about what you've done and the story that, that you've been telling is that what you accomplished there is what every single agency, every single governmental operation, I think, needs to do if they want to innovate, if they want to innovate for their citizens, for their country, for their safety. So you started this by you know, flipping procurement on its head. How did you even, you know, how did you find the people? Where did you, you know, get the first set of people? How did you manage to, to pay those people? Yeah, so huge credit to uh, Colonel Enrique Odi on this part. You know, he 
had a lot more flexibility over in Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. So he actually just put out a call to all the people in his network and said, hey, we're going to start doing organic software development with military members. Do you know anybody that knows how to code? That's how really? We, wow. You know, we didn't have to pay those people. They're already on military payroll, but we didn't have to pay their travel costs, right? And so we got a small budget or he got a small budget to bring those folks in. And actually the first initial contract that he did, and this kind of goes in that to answer your earlier question, maybe a little bit more directly too, there's the think big aspect of this, but it's really about starting small. And so he put together one team, really small effort, really small period of performance and brought together some incredible airmen. They're still around today doing even bigger things since Kessel Run. That small team worked alongside Pivotal Labs. You go into Pivotal Labs and you sit side by side with Silicon Valley, we actually did it out in San Francisco, uh, software developers. So you got these you know, crusty master sergeant, and, uh, some tech sergeants and a, a captain, and they're out there sitting alongside commercial software developers, designers, and product managers. And they built this really incredible product called Jigsaw, which it's part of the Kessel Run story. It's a really important part. I don't think we would have ever achieved the launch trajectory we needed if they hadn't been so successful. Yeah. And so tell us a bit about that, because again, you sort of took us through the Jigsaw story. And I think what you're saying right now is having, you know, senior military officials and what I witnessed in fatigues, because I was there that day, I think it was a Wednesday where everyone wore their fatigues sitting outside commercial software developers. And again, sort of all being in this sort of mission oriented view of, of delivering innovation and doing things a completely different way and then proving out the different way. So I, while Jigsaw is only one accomplishment, I think it is just such a powerful story in terms of what you achieved. And I think, of course, that story helped, and I've seen this in, all over the, the DOD, the power of that Jigsaw story helped the organization learn the power of agility, the power of product orientation, the power of innovation. So just tell us a bit about the Jigsaw story, because I think it's key that others figure out what their Jigsaw story is, prove it out, demonstrate it, and then, of course, use these stories to help show that there's a 10x better way of doing things, as you've done with Kessel Run. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that we decided to go after, actually, an interesting story is uh, Colonel Odie first targeted doing a mission planning application. And so we wanted to go after this pretty difficult problem inside of the Air Operations Center that controls all theater air operations. They started working on that project. We were about four to six weeks in, and they got a call from operating unit at LUD Air Base in Qatar. And uh, Eric Schmidt and his entourage with the Defense Innovation Board had been going on a tour and uh, they were looking around the AOC and he saw this whiteboard and he said, hey, what's that? And they're like, oh, this is how we plan all of the tanker missions for the entire theater, right? Air-to-air refueling. So all the assets that are up in the air, they need to get refueled. They're planning all of that for an entire war on a whiteboard. And so, you know, there's this conversation that ensued. The paraphrase is something like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And Enrique gets a call that says, hey, uh, stop what you're doing. You need to build a tanker planner app instead. And so it became a pivot, the first pivot. And so you didn't think that that three years of procurement and the nine-year cycle was a good way of doing that? Right. Yeah. But I mean, what's interesting, right, is you already have this agile team started and they're a couple of weeks in and they have this major pivot, which in in the old system is completely unheard of, but they were able to pivot and I'm glad they did, right? It was a, a huge success story. I think we probably couldn't have anticipated this in advance. Uh, so this is definitely a, a retrospective metric or a lagging metric, but they were able to build a replacement capability essentially for that whiteboard that optimized the tanker asset pairings. And they were immediately able to start saving hundreds of thousands of dollars per day by saving the number of tankers that had to go up in the air 
And so actually that project, the initial investment in it was about one and a half million dollars and it paid for itself in a week once it went to prod. And what's really crazy is, you know, I mentioned usually takes about eight years to get to prod in the DOD for a traditional program. And even if I just go development to prod, we're still talking a couple of years. In this case, they were able to launch on the secret network, right? So this is talk about governance, risk, and compliance, high degree of compliance here. In 120 days, they got their MVP to prod and it started being used to actually plan the refueling for the air war and uh, immediately started saving those hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Yeah, so it, you know, that clearly is a bit of a mic drop because I think that's, but the power of that story, and again, the fact that the amazing thing to me is that the complexity, the compliance, the governance, the safety criticality of the environment you were operating in, not to mention a new team proving out a new concept and, and a new way of doing things. But I think what to me is so powerful is that this can be replicated in other places. And for our listeners, I think this is, this is so key. And then the savings that you saw, and this is what's so mind-blowing about it, is they're all over the place, right? The fact that you proved this, proved out the savings within a week, had a team pivot into this you know, as soon as it became the most important thing for Kessel Run to demonstrate and to tackle next, and hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings per day by completely changing the delivery process. So what happened next? So, you know, at the same time, I was going through this process of getting this Kessel Run program launched. So... You know, we were pitching to leadership and there was still a lot of resistance to start this program and get a little bit more investment. Uh, and the success of that tanker planner couldn't have come at a better time, right? That was the primary thing that propelled leadership to say yes. There's no getting around it, right? We would have had a much tougher battle launching the actual formal program with a real funding line if it hadn't been for the success of that program. But that launched us into a pretty rapid scaling. I would say the success of Jigsaw almost made... Uh, leadership go to the other end of the spectrum to the point of being ridiculous. They wanted everything all at once. So we ended up scoping it down to starting five more projects, uh, again, with Pivotal Labs, immediately following that. We ventured into some pretty tough spaces. You know, it's funny, even after the success of Jigsaw, you still have the naysayers, the enterprise architects, the requirements folks. From there, we had several other apps. We scaled really quickly. By the end of a year and a half, we were up to almost 500 software developers, scaling from just the initial team of eight. And so what was demonstrated? So with now with those even more mission-critical apps, how was that received? What was demonstrated there? It proved that we could do it over and over again, right? I, I'm a huge fan of Ray Dalio's principles. Uh, he talks about the concept of believability. He says, if you haven't done something three times, you're just not believable. And so it, it gave us the credibility and the believability to start going after harder and harder problems. But at the same time, you know, I got to be honest, we started to find ourselves in what I, I refer to now in my current business as the lean trap, where... We focus so narrowly on these MVPs and making them even more joyful for users and you know, adding features to them. But we forget there's a whole enterprise out there. And so it was a thing that happened. It's a mistake, right? Looking back on it. But at the same time, that success that we had initially gave us the room to discover those things. And I think that's really important because we weren't just building software developers in the military, right? We also have to build that whole basically building a software company inside of the DoD now, and that's one of my taglines, transform the DoD into a software company that fights wars, is you know you have to start building the management layers, the leadership layers. You have to build the leader of a software company, a software director like Adam Furtado is now. And so um, it gave us the room to maneuver. And, and I would say that was the next big challenge is how do you build people that bring all of this together and produce global optimization. I mean, I guess to, to put it in a story you're probably familiar with, this is like textbook, the goal, right? 
Tanker Planner, amazing things, but as we kept working on it more and more, we were creating a lot of local optimization. And if we were looking at a, a portfolio management structure, we would have said, wow, you know, we should probably start investing more resources to the right and to the left to achieve more global optimization. Right. And so I do want to get back to that and talk about this thing trap in a moment. But the thing, you know, getting back because so many organizations were trying to make the shift to to products and value streams and 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 flow and agility and putting in place the DevOps practices. There's there's this question of where to start or where to start when you're, you know, you're working within a five or one or two or ten year project funded umbrella with a set of fixed requirements and so on. So I think some of the key things that I want to make sure people take away from what you've done is you mentioned timing, right? You and you mentioned pivoting your team. So you know, rather than worrying that you were in the structure, you actually went after sort of the most impactful thing that you could address. You proved it. You got people believing it can be done. You know, maybe it was yeah, maybe it was a simple web app, but it was actually, as, as I think I saw, it's actually something very profound with a massive ROI of, for the organization. And then again, and then you proved that you could do that over and over again. So I think for everyone struggling with where you get started, especially when you're working within a very large organization who's been doing things a very different waterfall way for so long, I think this is the answer, right? Is find that most impactful thing that you can demonstrate, then repeat it. But then that's really interesting, Brian, that you're saying, that, and I know exactly what you mean, you can get into this lean trap where you're doing these smaller MVPs over and over. And I think what we know is you've got a part of the delivery organization working exactly the way it should. And it's building software the right way. People have the right mindset, but it's not yet broad enough to affect the way that, that the whole organization, the entire value stream operates. And you know, really, we know that this is we, we don't want the local optimization. We want this end to end. And you know, it's how you and I started working more closely together. We want this end to end optimization of these value streams. So that I think in your environment is as complex as you know in the most complex commercial environments, right? There's there's, there's such a large organization. So how do you think about that now? So you, you know, in terms of, you know, getting out of that lean trap? A few things. And, and I, I think I do want to emphasize to everyone listening, because you mentioned where to start is don't start with alignment. I'm about to talk about alignment, but there's actually another trap. This one's a paper written on it called the alignment trap. But really the idea there is organizations that are low IT performers, if they focus on alignment first, this would be, you know, going out and I'm not bashing safe, but if you go out and you Decide you're going to implement safe top to bottom. You have more software architects than you have software developers, right? You get stuck in what's called the alignment trap where you have so much spending and so much activity focused on like, you know, mapping out value streams and all these things, but you don't have any means to deliver. So the most important thing that we did, even if, you know, because a couple of the apps after Jigsaw were actually failures. And we got lucky that Jigsaw wasn't a failure. A lot of times your first app is just going to be a failure. Okay. There were a lot of failures after that, projects that we just straight up canceled, others that we pivoted from. And I think the idea there is that the real value that you're trying to prove out is continuous delivery. Prove that you can take a change in code. Just, I love the question I heard Jez Humble asked one time is like, if I just made one change to one line of code in your code base, how long would it take you to get it to broad? Right? These are like fundamental problems that enterprises deal with. It's ridiculous that that should take any time at all to get to broad, but it might take a year in the DoD. So just proving that we could continuously deliver software to the secret network and still maintain the quality and risk profile, implementing all of the controls for compliance that we needed, that was the fundamental value. But yeah, this next part is creating alignment is really difficult. And so we experimented a lot here with, one, you have to start getting serious about actually mapping the current state of the value streams. 
And I think most organizations, I thought it was just the military, um, you know, because we go through periods of peacetime, right? We're a very capable fighting force, but there's no denying that peacetime dulls your blade or, or however you want to phrase that. But even in the work that I've done in commercial now, I've seen it over and over again where business leaders or mission owners don't actually, they could process block their value stream, but they can't measure it. They can't tell you what the lead times are. They can't tell you what the cycle times are. They can't tell you where the waste is. And um, that's where you should be aiming this new software development capacity that you have. Now you can continuously deliver, aim it at something, aim it at those bottlenecks in that waste. And so uh, we spent some time developing value stream mapping activities. Uh, Right now I'm experimenting in the Space Force with using theory of constraints, which kind of, I think, simplifies some aspects of the complexity of our enterprise. And then um, from there, you know, making sure that we are aligning resources properly to the outcomes that we have to achieve. And we've experimented with rolling systems like OKRs and forums like growth boards to do that. So there's like a million things we could talk about there. Uh, I'm sure you're curious about some of those, but at a high level, I would say the goal, no matter how you do it, Spotify model or something that you create custom internally your organization, you have to start focusing on creating alignment of all these teams. Absolutely. No, and I think as you probably know, all I really like to talk about in the end is flow metrics and OKRs. So I'm sure we'll get to that. But okay, so this alignment trap, I think I've seen this just over and over because I think what, what we're reflecting on is some of your success patterns and this work, right? And it's, it's having a, you know, had a major influence at Kessel Run. And now you're bringing the, the same kind of thinking and mindset. And we can t- talk about this in a moment to the Space Force. So the, I mean, the flip side that I see is, and actually this is why value stream mapping for me is this you know, double-edged sword. Cause I see so many organizations who they'll focus, they'll go so top down, do these intricate value stream maps, spend a week or a month doing them, bunch of PowerPoints, bunch of whiteboards, but none of it is around what you said, which is continuous delivery, right? None of it is being proven out. It's unclear whether those value streams are real because if they're not connected to how delivery happens, how do you know they're real, right? You could have a flawed view of reality. And so I see, you know, what I've noticed is these kind of success markers in organizations that, that get this the right way. And as soon as you were, we were digging in while we were at, at Kessel Run, and, and I was asking all these questions around Jigsaw, you know, you started telling me about Rebel Alliance, the kind of the event-based stream that it leverages and the investment that was made in that and how that was really a first-class thing. And what I've noticed that if you take the right approach, you don't do the alignment trap, you actually focus on delivery, focus on getting code, start small and start building out from there. These things that are, you know, one of these success markers is that you invest, to me, is that you invest in your platforms as products, as first class products, as you did with Rebel Alliance, right? It actually had a name, it had a team, it had significant investment because it drove so much other, it became a platform for innovation, all sorts of innovation for you. So I think there's just something that's intimately tied there between you know, avoiding that alignment trap, which again, can have you do a whole bunch of activities and not be able to translate those activities into continuous delivery of value. And again, what you've done by focusing on delivery and then making sure that you kind of grow out, the, you, know, you make that value stream bigger and bigger and bring in more and more of the stakeholders on board. So, I mean, maybe this is a good point to switch over to some of your experiences with Space Force and some of the discussions we've been having around those value streams and, and that measurement, because I think in the end, it is all about this, right? It's about getting those, you know, understanding the value streams, making them as broad as possible in terms of the stakeholders that gain value from them, that you're delivering value for, and then applying theory of constraints to that. Because if you've got 3,000 requirements getting thrown on your backlog, well, chances are there's a massive constraint in there. So, you know, tell us a bit about what you're doing with Space Force and how you're applying what you learned and 
And, and then, yeah, we can go down this, you know, how you're using these modern management methodologies, modern delivery, like, like OKRs, uh, modern delivery thinking, like value streams and flow metrics. So yeah, tell us a bit more about Space Force. Yeah, and to tell the Space Force story, I have to talk about platform. And we haven't really touched on that. And when you talk about Rebel Alliance, it reminds me of that platform, beta platform. But um, there's also the, the cloud native platform aspect of what we did. And I think it often is the unsung hero. We talk about the apps. And in fact, we are guilty of it. We just spent the last several minutes talking about all the applications, but not about developer productivity. And so you know, early on, we invested, we used Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Um, you know, I've seen this pattern repeated on other people using Pivotal Cloud Foundry as well as other platforms, right? But the key is there's a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting that has to happen that's below the value line, right? Uh, you know, when you're Google making changes to chipsets uh, is, is above the value line. But when you're the DoD and software, at least, is so far behind in what I would call horizon zero of innovation, not even producing the value it's supposed to produce today, you want to abstract away things like dealing with infrastructure and platform. So we chose a very structured, very opinionated platform. Uh, and then on top of that, we built things like Rebel Alliance, uh, you know, an event stream. We couldn't use Kafka at the time, although uh, they've migrated to and have deployed now Kafka. We used, uh, you know, RabbitMQ and, and kind of did a DIY version of it. But ultimately, that enabled developer productivity. The goal is... We're focused on these features that unlock value in the value stream and also keeping defects down. And for teams to be able to focus on those two things, they can't be worried about managing their you know, Kubernetes clusters and all these other things, which down the road is going to be important as your organization matures and you might get into that. But I, I would say when you're first starting, extract away as much of that as possible. So Space Force is a good example of that. Uh, a couple of guys that work for us at Kessel Run are a platform product lead who is just an all-star and then one of our most successful product managers on a product called Marauder, they got reassigned to Los Angeles Air Force Base and started a basically a, a replica of Kessel Run inside of Space Force. And they've been incredibly successful following the same patterns, but they had a lot of our lessons learned. So they invested in that developer productivity early. And they actually beat all of my records. Two dudes that work for me, and, and they're beating all my records. They have the fastest deployment to Sipper in the entire DoD that I know of which is uh, 55 days. Sorry, Sipper is the, the secret network that I mentioned. And so what we've been working with them on is establishing structure to scale earlier. And that's Rise8, the services that I'm offering them. I do everything from software delivery and helping teams learn how to deliver software better to leadership enablement to some of these strategy concepts that we're talking about today, like value stream mapping and OKRs but really been focusing on helping them get all of the leadership in place, like engineering practice leadership, portfolio management. So they start looking at their resources from a portfolio level and avoid those local optimization traps. It's incredible to see what they've done in a really short amount of time. Yeah. And I think this is the thing that to me is another marker of success patterns, that cloud thinking and leveraging cloud is, is critical to product orientation, right? These things do go hand in hand. And again, the environment under which you need to operate your cloud and the constraints that it has is another proof point that there, there are really no excuses to make that shift, right? If you're focusing that much of your own internal effort on below-the-line value, you're not putting into that innovation into actually focusing on delivery. It's a very quick conclusion if you, you know, combine you know, product thinking, value streams, and platform thinking that you actually need to deploy the cloud to have any reasonable flow time and feedback loop or, or OODA loop out of this. So I think that's, again, the 
you're saying that for you, those two things went hand in hand. So if you were to do this now with replicating the success a second time, if we do do a third time, it's always like clouds, product value streams and going hand in hand, regardless of the governance constraints of the environment. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when talking about this in the context of enterprises, which have a whole different set of challenges, startups or, or smaller organizations, and a lot of the same problems too, just at massively different scales. I would say you have to pay attention to the total cost of ownership for these platforms. If we did value stream mapping for that function, IT function, I think we would find this. But what I've ultimately found is you really, I just talked about developer productivity or the cost to develop on the platform. You know, how much time do I get to spend on features or on uh, you know, applications and data versus underlying infrastructure concerns? But then for operations, right, there's the cost to uh, get it running the day one cost, and then there's the day two cost of maintenance. Uh, and this eats a lot of organizations alive. I see them you know, deciding to do DIY platforms. Mm-hmm. The FTEs alone to operate and maintain that platform are, are infinitely more expensive yeah. than commercial things that they look at and say, oh, I can't pay that subscription cost. And then there's this third thing that's really important that you just mentioned, constrained environments that we work in. I call that the total cost of compliance. If you're working in a organization with high compliance, you want to abstract those controls as far down the stack as you can. So choosing a very opinionated, structured stack goes high up into what you know, a lot of developers want flexibility around. So there's a trade-off here, and you sometimes have developers that push back against this and operate operators as well. But the idea is if we want to be able to go fast initially, we have to abstract away all these controls. So in the DoD, I'll use an example. We had uh, the, the RMF, Risk Management Framework, and it's based on the NIST uh, controls, 800-53. And when you start getting into the secret and top secret networks, you're hitting over a thousand controls, and those have implementation guidance that puts you in 2,000 to 3,000 tasks that you're responsible for. And so rather than a typical project, you know, I would have app developers that would have, in the old way of doing business, that would have to answer questions like, is there a water shutoff valve within 20 feet of the server you're deploying to? Ridiculous question for them to have to answer. But important, important to the DoD, something that developer can answer. So um, that's a particularly egregious example. But what we did is we, you know, mapped those controls all the way up the stack to Pivotal Cloud Foundry and some of the other components we were deploying on top of it. What was actually left over for app developers was only 70 or so controls. And depending on the stack they were using, only about 40 were relevant, right? So now to get to prod the first time, I only have to worry about these 40 controls. I inherit the rest from the underlying tech stack. And so that model, I think more people should be exploring that in the enterprises. How do you inherit security controls and uh, QA controls from your underlying tech stack? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, some of the stuff is well below the line, such as the actual cloud platform. But then, of course, there's innovation that needs to happen in your platform, such as making sure, I think you put it so well, right, that your developers are dealing with less than a tenth of the, con- the total number of controls that you need within your platform when you're in this kind of environment. And, and a lot of enterprises are as well. So, by the way, this is so obvious that kind of DIY costs versus building on existing platforms and where you put your talent and your energy. But I think it's very obvious technologists who've built and worked on cloud applications. But one of the main reasons that I, with the flow framework, I approach product value streams as you know, having these flow metrics. We really care about flow time, but that is a metric of time to market and how we're doing on continuous delivery. But right in the, you know, in the top right of the flow framework, say that you need to understand the entire cost of each value stream 
And the hosting cost is part of the cost because the cost includes the headcount, but it also includes hosting. If you don't think of that as, as a single thing for each part of the value stream, you'll never make the right trade-offs, right? You won't be accounting for this infrastructure operations teams over here, spending inordinate amounts of time you know, reinventing a wheel that you know, was done by one of the cloud providers six months ago or 12 months ago. So I think that's, again, that you know, you've already got this baked into your mindset. But I think making sure that the value stream costs are understood from that perspective actually helps make these decisions much more obvious and has you leverage you know, existing things and focus on your innovation where it needs to be. And I think another, again, success marker is that you do consider that the innovation needed at that platform SRE layer as, as, as something you've already done. So any other sort of, you know, key lessons that, that you've taken from your efforts at Space Force now and from measuring these value streams and, you know, from some of the things that we're looking at as, you know, such as obviously flow time reduction and, and making sure that we're making these value streams broader, anything you can speak to there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I said, we're just starting this experiment with theory of constraints, but up until this point, we've been using more traditional lean value stream mapping and uh, some domain-driven design uh, style workshops, maybe some more agile domain-driven design, like event storming processes to get after the business events in the system and how we want to decompose them. And I think that a couple of mistakes that I've seen is people almost start to treat those as the new waterfall requirements process instead of something that has to continually be maintained. And especially, you know, assuming that you've gotten that ability to continuously deliver, almost every time you deploy, you're getting data, whether you're collecting it or not, or, or attention to it or not about your assumptions of that value stream. And so I think it's really important to keep a list of those assumptions and always be looking for the data that either validates or invalidates the decisions you're making in the value stream map. Another effective thing, we briefly mentioned it, but you know, in the Toyota model, you call this a target condition, right? I've identified a bottleneck or, or waste of some kind. I'm in a set of target conditions. At Kessel Run, we did one example. I want to reduce the amount of time it takes to prosecute a target by 20%. And then we can, we can do an impact map from there and figure out what users that touches, what existing systems that touches, and some potential solutions. And that gets really hard to manage when you have 30 teams. And so tools like OKRs and OGSMs, I, I see a lot of people in the community right now reacting to them as another buzzword and you know, roll your eyes, another management book type of concept. And I think that's the wrong approach. Certainly people misuse them just like they misuse safe, but there's really important functions that come out of that. And obviously Google's used them to great success, but you need some sort of goaling system that's very concise and very visible, put up on an information radiator and it actually fits. It's not in 30 or 50 pages. What teams need to be working toward? What metric, besides the flow metrics of you know, getting things out to prod with you know, high delivery performance and high availability, are you moving the needle for the business, right? Are you increasing revenues? Are you decreasing the amount of time it takes to do a mission? Uh, and I think this is where there's the business model canvas in the lean community. And we adopted uh, Hacking for Defense and, and Steve Blank used the mission model canvas. And that was something that was really helpful to us to kind of reframe how you think about some of these business processes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that so closely reflects my experience with best practices instead of starting an initiative and, and then really scaling it. So, you know, back in, I don't know, it's, I guess, 13 years ago now when I found the task, that was all about lean canvases. And we still do these lean canvases for, you know, big new initiatives. But really, as you scale, the flow metrics are key, but they have to be rooted in something that is meaningful to the organization. And that has people celebrate success, have the same scorecard for success. 
And so I've seen really nothing more effective on that front. And as you say, it's, you know, it's yet another business book, yet another methodology. But the good things about these methodologies, you know, like safe, like OKRs, is they do capture a lot of best practices, right? With OKRs, I've actually been using them uh, for almost 10 years now at Townstop, right? Because they're that, you know, we have great delivery practices, but that doesn't matter if everyone doesn't have the same goal of how delivering all these new features, how reducing time to market is actually going to move the needle for a customer, for, for someone consuming what we're creating. And I think, yeah, exactly. You being able, and I, for a lot of organizations, I've been seeing a lot of success with adopting OKRs within existing waterfall processes or just business planning processes because it gets people thinking about faster feedback loops. And in the end, that's how we bring continuous delivery to the business. And the whole purpose of value streams is to, is to shorten that feedback loop. And I think the key thing is to have everyone speaking the same language. So I think, again, just the fact that this is what you're focusing on now is, should be really meaningful to people undergoing similar efforts, which is that this really can help catalyze getting business stakeholders, getting other stakeholders onto the same scorecard. So... Yeah. And you reminded me of one challenge that I see quite often, which is these enterprises, when we try to move to a framework like OKRs or, uh, you know, with that target condition doing impact mapping, typically we want to push that down in this new model to the team level. But the requirements communities in the existing enterprise still want to push down static requirements. And so the key, whether you use you know, OKRs or I've become kind of a big fan of GSM framework uh, to use another framework in large enterprises because it gives me a place to put other boxes to put everybody's uh, concerns. But, um, you know, the, the problem that I see is we still don't frame things as outcomes. So the key is getting people to start framing things as outcomes. And then the other thing that I've seen that's really helpful is to let the requirements community do the impact map, but treat it as not set in stone, Right. This is context, and Netflix is famous for this in their culture deck, right? Like uh, lead yep. with context and not control. So yeah. use the impact map as context for this product team that's going to go out and talk to users. But recognize that you know we might have selected items one, five, and seven as the requirements we would have put on the requirement specification. But let's let the team discover if that's the right call, and then iterate. And what's nice is they get to see inside the mind of the requirements community, not just the three things that they chose, but all the other things they consider. That's really important. Yeah, I think that's such key advice, Brian. Thank you so much. And I think it's exactly it's providing that autonomy and with autonomy, you know, there is the context. And again, that forces the feedback loop and whatever mechanism you use, I think it's having outcome metrics and everyone focused on the same outcomes, whether your forcing function is these lean canvases, mission canvases, OKRs, GSM, I think it's absolutely key to connect that to value streams and to delivery, but you know, grounded right down and really meaningful to the teams, to everyone doing the work, because in the end, the, the whole point of continuous delivery is to move exactly those needles that everyone cares about in terms of delivering value. So thank you so much for sharing this and sharing the story. I think it's such a powerful story and it's great to see that you're going to help further transform what you're doing with Space Force and I think really provide these additional really, really impactful proof points and any other last words or thoughts for people who are looking to start on the journey that you started on quite a while ago now? Don't feed the beast. I think there's this constant theme of if you really want to uh, hack the bureaucracy, you can't feed the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy just grows. So when you're just starting out, it's important to stay true to your, your ideals and your values and, and the value stream, right? Use the data and the metrics. The earlier you can establish the metrics around flow and start using those to tell your story, the better off you're going to be. That's awesome. 
could not agree more. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for your time. Thank you. A huge thank you to Brian for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MCPLUS1 or Project to Product. You can reach out to Brian on Twitter, at BJ Kroger. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.